Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're in Habakkuk this morning. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Habakkuk, it's towards the end of the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so I'm getting kind of tongue-tied here, but all right. Habakkuk. So, how many of you guys have ever studied Habakkuk? Any of you guys? A few people. A, couple, you know, a few people. Not, not, not a whole lot of people have. You probably knew, know what's there in the Bible, but maybe you've never gone through and read it. Well, let me ask you a couple questions, and it's rhetorical. I don't need anybody to answer this, but have you ever prayed to God, and uh, in return, there was only silence? It's like you didn't hear... The Lord's, you know, you're, 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 you've been praying earnestly and, and, and maybe over and over again, and it just seems like there's no answer. Or have you ever prayed to God for something only to see him do something totally different than what you had asked him for? It's like, Lord, that's not what I was asking for. Or have you ever wondered why God seems to tolerate and allow uh, and even prosper the prosperity of wickedness and wicked people? You look around and you go, God, why are you allowing what's taking place? You know, you hear about all the stuff that ISIS is doing. It's like, God, why? Why are you allowing these people to be persecuted that way? If, if, any, of those, if any of those questions, you go, yeah, I've, I've been there before. Well, then the book Habakkuk is for you. It's really awesome. The book, Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, it's, it's unique in the prophets, in that it's a prophecy not written to people. A lot of the prophecies are written to people. Habakkuk is actually a record of Habakkuk's prayers and God's response. It's, 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 you, we're getting a glimpse into the relationship of Habakkuk and the Lord God. So it's a very unique, it's an exciting book. I want to encourage you to just uh, fasten your seatbelts and listen as we dig into your Bibles as we study along. But Habakkuk 1 verse 1, it says, The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Notice, first of all, that Habakkuk describes himself as the prophet. And what's interesting about that is when you get to the end of the book of Habakkuk, the very last verse, it says, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. And that, the fact that the Levites were in charge of temple worship suggests, because we don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk, but it suggests that Habakkuk was first a priest and then he was later called to be a prophet to the Lord. And because of his prophecy, as we'll get in here uh, a little bit later on, is about the coming Babylonian invasion of Judah, which he foresaw it hadn't happened yet. The thought is, many people believe that Habakkuk lived during the reign of good King Josiah. He was a very good king of Judah. Um, He had enacted reforms in the land. They had found the word of God and in the temple. It had been been neglected. They read it. um, And and there was just an amazing reformation that took place in the land. And Josiah was the one who enacted those reforms. Evidently, though, for most of the citizens, the reform was just external. It wasn't really internal in their, you know, it wasn't an internal change of heart. It was just, they were just doing it because the king had commanded it. And when Josiah died, two of his sons each had the throne in succession. And after those two sons, finally one of Josiah's brothers was appointed king. And all this took place before the Babylonian exile. All those three kings after Josiah were wicked kings of Judah. And because the reforms uh, that occurred during Josiah's time had been, you know, they had been really external. 
They weren't internal. People didn't change their hearts. As soon as Josiah died, um, not only were the kings wicked, but the people themselves quickly slid back into sin. And so the, the, the whole culture, the whole, the whole country, everything was just, it was wicked at that time. And Habakkuk probably wrote this shortly before the Babylonians started their marches into, into Judah. Uh, and if that's the case, and many people believe that's the case, that means that Habakkuk was a contemporary of the other prophets, Jeremiah and Zephaniah, at the same time. And Jehoiakim would have been the king at this time. Now, Jehoiakim, uh, he did not appreciate Jeremiah's prophecies because Jeremiah prophesied against King Jehoiakim and his sin and the things that he did. And Jehoiakim sought to kill Jeremiah several times. So it was just a very, a very evil time. The nation of Judah was morally as well as literally basically in its death throes. It was coming to the end of the kingdom at this time when Habakkuk's book was written. Now Habakkuk's name, it's interesting, it means to encircle or to embrace. And, and the picture that I have in my mind is you have someone, you know, they, they're entering into a wrestling ring and they're getting ready to, to, to wrestle with someone and they're circling their opponent. You know, they're, they're, all, they're eyeing each other up and they're circling and getting ready to, to grab on and, and, and put a wrestling hold on each other. And the reason why I bring that up and see that picture is because the book of Habakkuk gives us a record of Habakkuk wrestling with God. He's just struggling with what, what, what's taking place and God's responses to him and just regarding that whole situation in Judah. And the, name, the meaning of his name also, you get another picture too, and it's a picture of someone just clinging and just embracing in a firm embrace someone else. And, and because Habakkuk, as you get to the end of the book of Habakkuk, by faith, he clings to the Lord. Man, no matter what, I'm just going to hang on to the Lord. And so... That's Habakkuk's name. What was Habakkuk's burden? Verse 2. This is what Habakkuk's praying and crying out to the Lord. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. His first question is, how long, Lord? How long do I have to cry out? You're not answering my prayer, Lord. Have you ever felt that way? It's like you're praying and praying and praying. And and it's like you're, you're trying to do everything right. And it's like God's not answering you. Well, that's how... Habakkuk felt. His second question is, why? Why is all this wickedness going around around me, and you don't seem to be doing anything about it, Lord? That might sound like it's almost disrespectful, huh? But you know what? God wants us. He knows your heart already. You can be truthful with the Lord. I mean, I always want to, I fear the Lord, but, but be open and honest with the Lord. And this is what Habakkuk's doing. Lord, you don't seem to be doing anything about it. Look at, look at everything going around me. There's plundering. There's violence, strife, and contention. The law is powerless. I mean, nobody is obeying the law anymore. There's no justice. It seems like the judicial system is just broken. There are wicked people everywhere are turned, and people are getting away with murder. You know, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought Habakkuk wrote this like last year. You look around our society, don't you? I mean, it's like people are getting away with murder. There's all kinds of strife. There's 
people protesting everything nowadays. There's all kinds of wickedness going on. Have you ever felt like Habakkuk does here? Well, if so, I just encourage you once more, listen, take heed, because this book is written for you. It really is. Well, Habakkuk is perplexed. Wickedness and wicked people are flourishing, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. It's like Habakkuk saying, Lord, I'm praying for a revival in the land, and it seems just the opposite is happening. Where are you, God? I don't know if you've ever felt like God seems to be absent from your troubles. I've gone through situations like, Lord, I'm crying out to you about this situation. You don't seem to be doing anything, Lord. Well, the Lord answers Habakkuk. Verse 5. This is God's reply to him. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though, I were, though it were told you. So what's the Lord's reply to Habakkuk? I am working. Look and watch. I am working a work in your day. You see, God is actively involved in human events, even today. You know, even in your situation right now, you might be in a situation, you go, I don't, I don't see God's hand in it. I mean, it's like I've been crying out to the Lord. He, I'm being mistreated, whatever it is, and God doesn't seem to be doing something. I guarantee God is doing something. God is doing something. But he tells Habakkuk, but you wouldn't believe it if I told you. You know, in Job 9.10, it tells us that God does great things past finding out. Yes, uh, wonders without number. I mean, God's always working. He's always active. But the things that he does, it's past finding out. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. I mean, you know, sometimes we ask for stuff, and God's got something totally better planned for us. He, he even does, sometimes he doesn't even wait for us to ask. He does things, you know, we, we can't even comprehend it. God is, is working and doing a work. Well, what was God's work that he was going to do? Verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are, like, are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earth mounds and seize it. God says, I am doing a work. I'm raising up the Chaldeans which is another word for the Babylonians. They're terrible. They're dreadful. They are mighty warriors. They're not afraid of any king. They trust in their own strength. And I'm sending them to attack Judah. Now, verse 10 talks about heaping up earthen mounds. And that's basically how the Babylonians conquered fortified cities. They'd build these long dirt ramps up to the walls of the city, and they could just march up and go just scale the wall, basically, and take a city. And the Lord continues here in verse 11. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Now, we're speaking about the Babylonians, and so this could be describing King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Because we read in Daniel 4 how King Nebuchadnezzar, God had given him all this, this, this ability and this power and this might to be able to conquer the, the, the kingdom, the world basically at that time. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, he's overlooking this vast empire that he, that he caused. And it's like, you know, he's, he's praising himself and boasting and ascribing that success to himself. And God at that point changed his mind to that of a beast. And he was driven from his throne for seven years, basically living like a wild animal until he acknowledged the God of heaven. Could be describing that. Or verse 11 could be describing the last king of of the Babylon Empire, which was Belshazzar. He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And on the night, the very night of the fall of the Babylonian Empire, Belshazzar held a drinking party, and he had his servants bring in the cups that were used in the temple for the service of the temple, and he drank out of them, and they worshipped their god, which was Marduk or Merodach or Bel is different names. They worship their God. In any, but in any case, whether it's that, you know, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, Habakkuk hears what God's going to do. You know, he's been crying out, God, you know, you're not doing anything. God says, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians to conquer Judah. That's not the answer that Habakkuk was waiting to hear or wanting to hear. And he's just perplexed. And so verse 12, Habakkuk responds to the Lord. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. Let's take a step back for a moment. Habakkuk sees all this wickedness taking place in Judah. I mean, it's just terrible. There's injustice everywhere. The law of the Lord is totally ignored. And Habakkuk has been crying out to the Lord, and all he's been hearing is nothing. Silence. And then the Lord tells Habakkuk, hey, I am working. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to punish my people. They're vicious. They're mighty. Nothing will stop stop them. And they ascribe their greatness to their idols. I mean, mean, Habakkuk is probably like, something's not computing here. I mean, it's like, you know, Habakkuk's like, you know, I'm talking apples. And Lord, you're talking oranges. I mean, I'm asking you to do uh, something about this wickedness. And you're sending more wickedness. You're doing what the Babylonians Can you imagine how Habakkuk felt when he heard that? And Habakkuk, you know, I mean, he's a a believer in in the God of heaven. He says, the Chaldeans are going to ascribe great power to their idols. And so he says, but but Lord, aren't you from everlasting? I mean, aren't you the only true God? And then Habakkuk makes the statement, we shall not die. Now, when you're reading that verse, does that seem out of place to you? I mean, it's like, huh? We shall not die. I mean, it seems non-secator. I like that word, non-secator. It's like all of a sudden he's changing the subject. We shall not die. Well, let me explain what I think is happening. See, if Habakkuk was indeed a contemporary of Jeremiah, he probably would have heard Jeremiah's prophecies or read the scroll of Jeremiah. Five times in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord says something to this effect. It's recorded in five different verses. The Lord basically is talking about how the Babylonians are going to conquer Judah. And he says, nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. You're going to be punished, but I'm not going to wipe you out. I'm not going to destroy you. And so I think Habakkuk is confused, of course, by what he just heard. But rather than giving up and ending his prayer and just say, that's it, I give up and walking away. I think Habakkuk now is standing on the promise of God. 
It's so important when things are perplexing for in your and my life. You don't understand why God's doing what's, what's happening. I tell you, remembering God's promises and clinging to them. It's like Habakkuk saying, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're doing this. But Lord, I'm, remember your promise? And you, you know, God, you said that you would do this. And you, you just fill in the blank there, basically. And so Habakkuk says, we shall not die. But he says, O oh Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, meaning God has appointed the Chaldeans for God's, as God's instrument for judgment. And he says, O oh rock, and that word actually is, is a large rock or a boulder or a cliff or a wall of rock, and it means stability or something to look on or to, pen, to depend on. He says, O oh rock, you have marked the Chaldeans basically for correcting Judah. He's acknowledging what God has just told him. But this is troubling Habakkuk. I mean, he's just like, okay, God, you've said this, but, verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wilderness, <clears throat> wickedness. Excuse me. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their shame is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? You know, Habakkuk says, you are a holy God. Why are you allowing wicked people, even more wicked than the people of Judah, why are you allowing them to be your instrument of judgment and correction for your people? How can a holy God look on and even allow these wicked people to prosper? Why do you prosper them while they do not even acknowledge you. I mean, they're ascribing their greatness and their success to their idols. And Habakkuk's just sitting there going, man, I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And so what does he do? Well, chapter 2, he does a very, very wise thing. Verse 1, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Man, it's such a wise thing that Habakkuk did there. Verse 1, first of all, he says, I'll stand my watch. Now, I don't know if you understand what that means or the implications, but if you've been in the military, you know exactly what that means, standing a watch. I've had to stand a watch several times. What it means, basically, is for a set period of time, you're in one location. You're alert. You're awake. You're not sleeping. Guaranteed, you're not sleeping. You might even have to be physically standing. Not necessarily, but you might have to be physically standing. And you have only one thing to be focused on, and that's your job. That's all you do. It might be guarding something, or it might be on the lookout for something. Um, I, I was in the Coast Guard, and so uh, we were. In, I was a search and rescue station when I was first in, in uh, on the Oregon coast, and I had a couple different watches. One of the watches that I stood, although I sat, <laughs> they call it standing a watch, though, um, is I was in a radio control room. And basically, we were listening for mayday signals. Anytime a mayday signal would come in, we'd respond, and we'd activate you know, whatever emergency stuff we had to activate. And that was your job. You better not be sleeping. <laughs> you know? I remember one time getting a mayday call from a plane that was crashing. 
And I'm, I'm like, mayday, mayday, mayday. I'm like, oh, this is the U.S. Coast Guard. You know, where, it, was a, it was an airplane in Texas. Somehow the radio, radio signals had traveled, and I picked it up. So then I had to call you know, people out in Texas or whatever to respond. But, but that was one of, the, one of the places. The other thing, I, I had a, I was a, a bar lookout. Not, I wasn't like by the North Star looking at the, the bar, you know, watching who's coming. Out. When a river empties into the ocean... That's called a bar right there where the river is. And so the bar lookout, basically, I had to do weather reports. I had to watch the swells, and there was different ways you could tell. And I'd have to keep track of every ship or every boat that went by. And, and we kept a log of them, and, and we'd watch them. I'd watch, you know, if there was a certain time of the year, if there were surfers out because there were sharks out there. And so it was basically, you had just had to pay it. That was your job. You, couldn't, you, you stayed there until you were relieved, it was that was your job. That was your focus. You were responsible for that. Well, that's what standing a watch is. It pictures an attitude of attention, of looking and watching. And so Habakkuk's asked the Lord some really tough questions. He's been pretty frank with the Lord, and now he's going to wait at attention and with anticipation for an answer. You know, I wonder how many times you and I miss the Lord's answers because we're not focused on expecting an answer. And we rattle off a prayer and we, we go, yeah, I hope he answers my prayer, and we walk off. Rather than, I'm waiting here, God, I'm expecting you to answer me. You know, one way to really get focused in your prayers is fasting. Fasting, I mean, it's like, it's not a very common, not a very, you know, like, woohoo, let's go fast. But that really, if you want to focus in your prayer life, fasting is a good way to do it. The second thing he says, I will set myself on the rampart. That word rampart, it's a masculine noun indicating a siege. It indicates being hemmed in or being isolated. And so, what, what Habakkuk is, is, is picturing here, it's getting alone with God. I'm going to get isolated with the Lord here. I'm going to get away from all distractions. In our vernacular, we'd say, I'm getting into my prayer closet. You know, it might be turning off the TV, or for some people, just log off of Facebook, you know, or, uh, you know, setting your cell phone to stun, maybe even turning it off. There's a, there's a novel concept. You know, you're waiting for that text, you know, to come in. You know, when I'm preparing a message, it's amazing you know, you talk about spiritual warfare, and you go, well, man, I bet you, you know, you're preparing a message, and people might respond, and so the, the devil's just going to send demons, and he's going to do all this warfare. You know, he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He sends distractions my way. They're innocent, they're good, but they're distractions. I can get distracted so easily when I'm preparing. Well, this is a picture of being focused and being isolated, just getting alone with the Lord. The third thing he says I will watch to see what he says to me. The word to watch means to lean forward, to listen. In other words, I'm going to wait knowing he's going to answer me. You don't lean forward to listen if you're you're not expecting an answer. Habakkuk didn't say, I will watch to see if he answers me, but I'm going to wait and I'm going to listen for his answer. I know he's going to answer me, so I'm going to wait for that answer. That's the prayer of faith. In James 1.5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
back is like, I, I know you're going to answer me, Lord. I'm going to wait for that answer. I'm going to get rid of all distractions. I'm going to be singularly focused on you. And the fourth thing he says, after he says, I'm going to watch to see what he will say to me, he then says, and what I will answer when I am corrected. I, that's something to take note of there, because that's an attitude of humility. See, Habakkuk doesn't have the attitude of, God, you're totally wrong, and you need to answer to me why you're not doing what I'm expecting you to do. Habakkuk is in humility acknowledging, I know I don't know the answers. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me, but you're, you are right. God is right. Let every man be a liar. God is right. And so I must be wrong. And so, Lord, correct my thinking, Lord. Correct my attitude. Lord, align my heart with your heart in this matter. You see, that's such a wise thing that Habakkuk did there. I mean, he's so, he's so perplexed, so confused, so he just doesn't understand. He says, but, but I'm going to wait for the Lord. Lord, I'm going to wait for your answer. And his heart's in the right place to hear God. And so now God is going to explain the wise to him. Verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. You know, Habakkuk's in the right place. And it's like God saying, okay, Habakkuk, your heart's, you're, 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 you're in the right place. Pick up a pad of paper. I want you to take some notes. He says, write the vision. In other words, what I show you. Make it plain on tablets. In other words, make it clear. Make it understandable that he may run who reads it. Make it practical that people can run with it. In other words, they can apply it. You know, that alone ought to be worth a semester of seminary for anybody. You know, it's like, teach what the Spirit shows you. You can't give out what you don't receive. Teach what the Spirit shows you. Make it as clear and as understandable as you can and give the application because God's Word is meant to be applied in our lives. That's what I try to do all the time. I, I try to pull the application. Look, okay, it's great to fill you with all kinds of knowledge and facts and figures, but what does that do for your life today? How does it apply to your life today? And that's what every pastor should be trying to do, giving the application. There's an example in the book of Nehemiah. I know the women just went through uh, the book of Nehemiah and their studies before this Genesis study. But after the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt, the Nehemiah, the, as were the priests and the Levites, they gathered all the people. And the people stood before the Levites. The Levites stood up on, I don't know if it was boxes or whatever, but they read the law of the Lord to the, uh, read the law of the Lord to the people. And in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, it says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's basically what they did. They, they made it clear, make it understandable, and they gave the application. Hey, this is, this is what God means. This is how you should apply it in your lives. And so the Lord continues, verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Here the Lord is saying, Habakkuk, I am working. I am raising up the Chaldeans to be my instrument of judgment on all the wickedness you see around you. And the vision that I'm about to show you is for an appointed time. You won't see it in your lifetime, Habakkuk, but it's going to happen. It's interesting that part of the verse says, though it tarries, wait for it because it, surely will, it will surely come. It will not tarry. It seems like a contradiction there, doesn't it? See, to Habakkuk's eyes, it may seem like the Lord is tarrying, 
But in reality, God has an appointed time, and that time will happen. Nothing will delay or postpone it. God's appointed time. You know, we may want God to act now, and it seems like he's dragging his feet, but just remember this. God's timing is never our timing, and his timing is always perfect. And when it is time, (laughs) nothing's going to stop it from happening. Nothing's going to stop it from happening, from being accomplished. You know, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse in Habakkuk, verse 3, and he's encouraging his readers to endure until Christ's promised return. And it may seem like God's tarrying in returning. I mean, you know, we were just singing today, Lord, I pray that you would come today, that our faith would be sight. I mean, I, man, I, I, I love that worship song because it's like, Lord, I don't have to do any more Bible studies. I, I, you'll be here, Lord, you know, I'll just I'll keep praying for his return. It may seem like God's tearing, but you know, the Bible says that in a sense he is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. But there is an appointed time. And it, when it comes, when, when, when God says, that's it, the last person that accepts Christ as their Savior, that's it. Boom, the rapture's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it when Christ comes to return for his church. But it's an appointed time. Verse 4 The Lord continues, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. That is a bedrock verse of the Christian faith. That verse altered the course of history when you look at the the works of Martin Luther and the Reformation. The Apostle Paul takes this same verse and he quotes it in three different New Testament passages and he applies it in three different ways in those three different passages. In fact, we'll be looking at those, not this morning because we'll be here till three o'clock, but we'll be looking at those in another message actually. But how does it apply to Habakkuk? The just shall live by his faith. You see, Habakkuk's problem was he did not understand how God could allow the wicked to prosper. It just didn't make sense to him. And, you know, they're prideful, they're wicked, they're, 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 they're ascribing all their success to their idols. And God assures him that he sees the heart of the proud man. He sees that their heart is not upright. But Habakkuk, God says, the just man or the upright man shall live by his faith. In other words, Habakkuk, you're going to live by faith. You're not going to live by what you see or how you feel or what you understand. You're going to live by faith. Habakkuk, you're not always going to understand what I'm doing. You're not always going to understand why I'm doing it or even when I'm doing it. Your life is going to be lived by faith on earth, faith in me. You know, in Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts nor are, my, are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as, high, excuse me, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't think the same way you and I think. We think God should do this, but God's got a plan that's right, and it's his plan. Paul in Romans 11, you know, he's explaining God's plan for the nation of Israel in the last days, how all the nation of Israel, the remnant's going to be saved in those last days. And he's reflecting on what he just written to the church in Rome. And, and as he's, he just starts worshiping the Lord in the middle of what he's writing, in, in chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth 
of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? And so God's telling Habakkuk, it doesn't make sense what I'm doing. I know you wouldn't have believed it if I had told you. But you have to trust me. You have to walk in faith. He says the same thing to you and I when we're faced with things we just don't understand. Why, why are you allowing that, God? God says, I've got a plan. I've got an appointed time. Trust me, walk by faith. See, the world lives by the senses of taste, touch, smell, see, and hear. And God's not playing some cruel joke on, on you and I, you know, withholding things from us. What he's doing is he's training you and I to live by faith in him because he's pre- preparing us for eternity. Because in Hebrews 11.6, we read, it's without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those seeking, of those who diligently seek him. See, God's weaning us off of just, just trusting in what we see, what's in front of us. God wants us to trust with the eyes of faith, to walk and to trust in him. The just will live by faith. And now God's speaking about the Babylonians. See, he's, he's going to assure Habakkuk now. He didn't have to, but he's going to assure Habakkuk that he's well aware of the situation. And so now he's talking about the Babylonians. Verse 5. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. You know, as revealed in the book of Daniel, the Babylonians loved their booze. They, they did. Uh, not only were they intoxicated by wine, but they were also intoxicated by their own success. God says the person who's always seeking success in the worldly sense, they're never going to be success, satisfied with success. It floors me when you start hearing about these movie stars. You know, they, 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 they want all the celebrity status. They get it. They're, they're the They're the superstars. They've got more money than they know what to do with. They've got people that just adore them. I mean, they're at the peak of worldly success, and they shoot themselves. They kill themselves. They commit suicide. Why? Because they're not satisfied. Because you won't find satisfaction in success, in the world's sense of success. Verse 6. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him increases what is not his? How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations and the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. See, one day when Babylon's destroyed, all those nations who were oppressed by them are going to taunt them. What they inflicted on others would eventually be afflicted upon them. That's what God's saying basically there. And then, now in the rest of this chapter, God declares four woes against the wicked in general, but also the Babylonians in particular. Verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. When when it's talking about a house, it's talking about beams and timbers, but what's really being spoken of here is a family, or in the case of the Babylonians, a dynasty. 
They became wealthy by dishonest gain, and they coveted wealth no matter how they got it, and they tried to protect themselves financially. I mean, they felt successful because of all that they had gathered. This is really a woe against the greedy man. See, what they build from greed would be a testimony against them in due time, is what the Lord's saying. All that they've, all that they've accumulated, it's going to be a testimony against them. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and the nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. This is a woe against the mighty man. The Babylonians were mighty men. They ruled by their might. They were successful because of their power and they, they, were, they were feared by many. This is a woe against the mighty man who uses his might to crush others by violence and abuse. You see, the mighty think they own the earth. I think Donald Trump thinks he owns the earth, but I mean, the mighty think that they own the earth. That's not a slam against him, but, um, but the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth, right? That's what the Bible says. Now, verse 14, it's also in Isaiah 11.9. And in Isaiah 11.9, it's speaking about the millennial reign of Christ on the earth when the meek will literally inherit the earth. You see, the mighty think the world is theirs for the taking from the weak. That's what the mighty think right now. We'll just take it from the weak. But God's reminding Habakkuk prophetically that a time is coming, God's going to reign when Christ returns. Verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor and pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter, utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Verse 17 is a tough one. Let me read it in another translation. It says, You cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. So going back up here to verse 15, this is basically a woe to those who entice others to sin. Now he's speaking specifically by, about enticing others by getting them drunk, but also by other means. The Bible talks about that a lot, you know, a lot. It's bad enough when a person sins by themselves, but it's when they cause someone else to sin, it, their guilt's just multiplied. Jesus said, if a person causes one of those little ones, and he's either talking about children or baby believers, if, if, if you cause one of those little ones to stumble, he says it's better if you have a millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the, into the middle of the ocean than to face my wrath. That's how God feels when people entice others to sin. Paul talks about, you know, you and I, we, as believers, we have freedom in Christ. But he stresses, yeah, you've got freedom, but you better be careful not to use that freedom in a way to cause others to stumble. There's a, there's a huge responsibility in that. Verse 18, what profit is the image that its mark, maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. This woe is a woe against idolaters. 
You know, it's amazing that man will worship created things rather than the creator, and yet that's human nature. You know, it's idolatry is worshiping anything other than the Lord God himself. It could be a career. It could be your possessions. It could be your success. It could be another relationship with someone else. If it gets in the way of your relationship with God, it's idolatry. And so in conclusion, looking back on all this here, Habakkuk's wondering why God had not heard his prayers, why God was allowing wickedness to thrive, and God says, hey, I am working, even right now, but you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but I am working. And it was true. God had told Habakkuk, uh, God told Rebak, or, excuse me. God told Habakkuk in response to Judah's wickedness, God was raising up the proud and wicked Babylonians to judge His people. And Habakkuk's like, I don't believe it. I, I, mean, I don't understand it. He was incredulous. How can a holy God use an unholy people and even allow them to prosper? And God's response, Habakkuk, you have to live by faith. You have to trust me, even if you don't understand what I'm doing. And then, of course, he reveals to Habakkuk that he was, in fact, aware of the wickedness of Babylon. He just enumerated all these things. Babylon, you know, Habakkuk saw his wickedness, and God says, I see it. I see their pride. I see their, 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 their violence. I see, I see what they're doing, Habakkuk. And in my timing, at the appointed time, they're going to be judged. But it won't happen in your lifetime. It's going to happen at an appointed time. And the Lord's last comment to Habakkuk, and I want to close with this, Habakkuk, things may seem out of control, but I'm not in panic. Look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk, there's chaos going everywhere. There's anarchy. You're right. Things are just, they just seem out of control. But you know what? I'm still on the throne. Let all the earth be silent before me. It's such an important thing for us to remember. You know, there, maybe this morning there's chaos in your life. You know, we, we come to church and, you know, I, I don't see chaos in people's lives. I don't see it in your eyes. But, you know, maybe in your heart, in your life, your situation, there's just, it's crazy right now. Could total anarchy is going on around you. I want to encourage you this morning. God's still on the throne. He's still in control. And let all the earth be hushed in silence before him. And, you know, one thing I just want to just close with this. You know, if God's not in a panic... Keep your eyes on the Lord. If, if he's not panicked, you don't need to be panicked either. That's just an important thing to remember. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this glimpse into your relationship with Habakkuk. I thank you that the Holy Spirit recorded this conversation, this prayer, and these, these answers for us because, Lord, we so often struggle with the same things where we struggle with understanding why you're allowing things to happen or, or why you're not answering prayers the way we think you should. Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would walk by faith, Lord, that we would live by faith, Lord, that we would realize that we don't have the whole picture. We don't understand that, Lord, you are the only true and wise God, and that, Lord, we would just trust in you and rest in that promise. And, Father, I thank you, Lord God, that you are in control, Lord. Even now, Lord, you are raising up people and you're bringing people down and it's according to your will lord and so lord we just thank you that that uh, in the midst of chaos in the midst of anarchy lord we have that anchor that firm rock that we can trust in and that's you lord god so i thank you and father i pray for each and every person here this morning i pray for those that are maybe maybe even this morning lord they they've just got chaos in their lives
or maybe they've been praying for something and, and you either haven't answered it or you've answered it differently than what they expected. Father, I pray that, Lord, the, the words, the, the, the message this morning, Lord, I pray that they would take it to heart, that, Lord, they would get alone with you and just spend time with you in prayer. And, Father, that you would just align their hearts with your heart. And I pray that you would encourage them, Lord, that they might realize that, Lord, that they just need to trust you. You're in control. And so I thank you this morning for those reminders, Lord. I thank you for each person here this morning. I pray that you would bless them and that they might be encouraged this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.